Thank you very much, everybody, for coming to the last of the video series for the session. Um, it is my great pleasure to be able to introduce Dr. Mary today. Um, he uh, did his PhD at the University of California in 2004, um, and he has had postdoctoral positions at the Max Planck Institute, also at the LSE. Um, he's been the Marie Fellow at Nottingham. He's currently the holder of the European Grant at Sheffield <coughs> University. And he's been working on epigenetics and public policy. Um, his book, which is really amazing, I really recommend it, has just come out, uh, Political Biology, Science and Social Values in Human Heredity from Genetics to Epigenetics. And today we are going to be hearing about governing pastoral biology, biopolitics, and epigenetic science. Thanks so much. Very kind of you for inviting me. It's a great privilege. And I hope this talk will be about for your own research. I have to say this is a bit in between my, my book and something else I'm starting to work right now, uh, which is about plasticity, but it's about... So I was actually very impressed by a recent book by historian Peter Boro, who is a reference point for me. So this book is called Darwin the Little, so in which he imagines how evolution would be without... If Dar Darwin had died, in his beagle uh, during his, his travels. And so I, I'm trying to imagine something similar in a world where genetics is the reason. So our race would be in a world where there are no genes. So obviously I'm, I'm interested in my book about epigenetics in non-mainstream ideas of heredity, aside from Mendelian genetics. So, and, uh, so this is part of, probably is a sort of uh, bridging talk between the, the, the previous book and the one I'm trying to write now. So this is about plasticity and obviously this is a very dense world with plenty of meanings. It's very trivialized. There is lots of uncritical understanding of what plasticity means. So I think it's a real labyrinth, uh, semantically speaking, around plasticity. It's a very used word in contemporary life sciences, for, so from cloning to stem cells. Uh, neuroscience to epigenetics is it, an ubiquitous word. It's everywhere in 21st uh, life sciences. Uh, phenotypic plasticity, synaptic plasticity, morphological plasticity, plasticity of sensory motor co coordination, the plastic brain, the plastic genome, etc. So, this is a pretty basic definition by uh, Mary Jo Westever, the philosopher of biology. It's the ability of an organism to react to an environmental input with a change in form, state, movement rate of activity. So this is pretty a basic definition. So I, I want to try to challenge sort of three myths. I'm not sure that if they are uh, myths for you as well. If they are not, in that case, the talk is slightly uh, awkward, probably. I, I hope so you share some of these myths at least, so it will be more effective what you want to say. So these are myths that I continuously find in, in, in many books on, on plasticity. So uh, I recently uh, read a book by an anthropologist, a young anthropologist, which is called Plastic Bodies. It's about the plasticity of the bodies in Brazil. And I can see that these three myths are more or less around the book, not really investigated. So one of the myths is that Western view of race and organism have been dominated by ideas of non-plasticity, fixedness, instability. So that plasticity is a sort of 
forgotten non-mainstream ideas that is now popping up again, but it wasn't, it wasn't really there for, for long times. And if we shall look, as we shall do now, at a broader perspective than just the 20th century, we shall see that this is really untrue, that this is not what corresponds to truth. The second idea is even, I think, more, more important, is the idea that plasticity has to do just with malleability, with freedom of change, with potential, with the promise to make of our own plastic uh, organs somehow what we want. And I will go a bit into the detail of the semantic of plasticity to show how complex is actually the meaning of the term which comes from the science of, um, of, of engineering and physics, or so of inanimate materials. And the third myth, I think, is that plasticity is mostly associated with progressive social values and is, in fact, the opposite of or the antidote to eugenic thinking. And not so here, especially with this small my expertise, I have to say. This is exactly, I think, a very profound misunderstanding that plasticity and eugenics are two different things. So I would start from the first myth then. So the idea that we you know our thought has been dominated by idea of fixedness, of identity, of um, lack of change, and that just now we are starting to understand that our body is plastic, is porous, that our brain is social and plastic, and so our genome. So actually, you know, if, if, if we look at things in a different perspective, so I start, for instance, from one of the possible disciplines where we can look at, which is geography in a, in a broad, you know, non-disciplinary sense. So whatever has to do with the, the influences of the environment in shaping the, the human body, you know, actually we find a much longer and broader tradition of arguments about the profound uh, porousness and penetration of the environment into the body of people, into the mind of people, up to the point that the, the same destiny, the same political uh, configuration of certain groups is profoundly shaped by the climate, by the location, by the food, by the geography of where they are. So this is a very, you know, I'm, this is somehow well known to geographers, uh, who study the history of their own discipline, and uh, it's a tradition that is very strong, uh, certainly in France, certainly in Germany. So, for instance, I, I take this citation from a famous uh, 18th-century German geographer. It's you know it's full of very different things. This citation, but it's clear from the way it is conveyed that it takes for granted the idea of a profound porosity of the human body to the environment. It, says, if it takes a number of generations to transform a white man into a Negro, then I'm convinced that a much longer period is required to make the Negro white again. And obviously here there is one of the points that we look at talking of the politics of plasticity, that there is often an asymmetry between races. But the basic point is that both can become the other one, although one takes longer than, than the first. And it's an argument about all permeable bodies 
acquired coloring more recently than the Lusitagianate is therefore not at all unconcealable to many of the Negroes of Pennsylvania, which is not a very cold place yet, would require a long time to get rid of their burnt in black pigment. So it's an argument about Negroes taking longer to become white than vice versa, but it's an argument that takes for granted as an unquestionable truth the possibility that race is simply the long-term effect of the environment on the human body. So certainly this is about geography, and the, for instance the influence of Lamarckian uh, cultural American geographers has been particularly highlighted. Even stronger, in my view, this happens when we look at history of the heredity in medical literature. So for sure we know that, so making a long story short, heredity, as you know, was a term since the Middle Age used in juridical context. It was used in medical context only as an adjective, and it's only from the very late, let's say with the French Revolution, that the red starts to become a name, heredité, also in, in medical writings. But this transformation of heredity into a noun, into a theme, and the wave of hereditary literature in the early 19th century has not to be confounded at all with what we need today, with heredity. So it's an heredity completely open to the world, completely open to life experiences, beginning with conception and going on through the wind. It's not something that is fixed at birth. So for instance, it's an idea that everything that is acquired, in terms, for instance, of disease, good, epilepsy, insanity, etc., get fixed in the heredity of following generation. So, for instance, this citation by Erasmus Dowie at the beginning of the 19th century, in this poem, The Temple of Nature, uh, the climate kind or noxious food instills to embryo nerves hereditary ills. So, I don't want to make this, oh, sorry, to make this uh, bigger than it is, but, you know, this is one of the basic notion of contemporary nutrigenomics, that food has an impact on the way our hereditary material is expressed, to, make, to translate this in, 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 in lay terms. The female birds acquire this is chaste, to that extinguish the degenerate race. The term degenerate is important because, again, it gives an idea that plasticity and degeneration are two arguments profoundly but if you look at Spencer many, many decades after Erasmus Darwin, this is the factors of organic evolution uh, at the title of the work. So he says this thing that I found, you know, for us, sounds of the 20th century, it's a very confusing sentence. So it's a sentence about characteristics may, in the successions of individuals, generate innate tendencies like or dislike such actions. So the innate is something that is actually generated. It's something that the inborn is the result of a very short-term history of actions, deeds by previous generation. So this idea that reality is profoundly plastic has been there for certainly the whole 19th century, the influence of Lamarckism on various disciplines, sociology included, is, was very profound. So, this I did this morning, so I'm not sure, I need to check this better, but I 
wanted to do something a bit uh, visual for you. So I would represent more in this way the relationship between rays and fixedness. So in my view, we have the 20th century, so the century of the gene, in which ideas of hardness of heredity, so of non-plasticity of heredity in rays, have been prevalent with a very marginal uh, presence of Lamarckian's ideas until 1920, more or less. But we have a longer, longer history before that, in which plasticity, softness, environmentalism, centrality of the milieu, and then Lamarckism were mainstream ideas. There was certainly, there was certainly since the 19th century, a typological view of race that then became the racism we know well with people like Gopinova, Shidelapuj. There is a very interesting citation in Vashidelapuj about Mendel. So in 1909, I mean they were not Mendelians, they were not obviously, they were before Mendel, although Vashidelapuj wrote also after 1900. And the way you understand Mendelism as a confirmation of these ideas of fixed. So something has occurred that has put together these two ideas of non-plasticity, which are very different. But if we look at things on the broader view of the history of the relationship between, between the organism and its environment, race and fixity, I would say that the idea of non-fixity of race is more an episode, is more an exception. I don't want to make this too strong, but Let's try to, 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 to look at this in, in the way I'm trying to say. So it's, we don't have to, to, to take for granted that what we have known since the rediscovery of Mendel was the general understanding of people over history about the relationship between the body and the environment. And then obviously there is an argument which we have now about the return of these ideas of plasticity today in the scripture of race. So I want to come now to the second point quickly, which is about the equation of plasticity with the idea of freedom, future, change, potential, uh, promise of, you know, metamorphosis and uh, infinite variability of behaviors and forms that well resonates with the imaginary of a neoliberal society, whatever. So plasticity would be the opposite of destiny, of fate, of determinism, of persistence. So this is, for instance, taken from an advertisement by a pharmaceutical company uh, selling uh, epigenetic drugs. So they say, well, DNA is some, something written in pen. Epigenetics is in pencil. It can be erased and rewritten as many times as blah, blah, blah. So there is clearly an argument in which plasticity is taken as the possibility of Writing, erasing, and writing, erasing, and so on and so forth. And you know, this is obviously very. I'm not a philosopher of language, but obviously, looking at usage of language is very important. But uh, a bit of, of history of the term. So, so this is a book by Herder, which is called Plastic. Uh, and it's about sculpture, obviously, the plastic art. And if you think of sculpture, sculpture is obviously the opposite of the advertisement by the pharmaceutical company, where something can be written and 
erased whatever, uh, how many times you want. It's something about an irre irreversible process, but we come to this. So the terms come from the Greek plus saying, which means to mold or model. And since Aristotle, this is used in a very ambivalent term. So in Aristotle, it's both associated with the idea of added gains of action and past gains of passion, so receiving form. So it's taken in this ambivalence between giving and receiving form. So it can take similarly to this idea of pharmacon as something that can cure and poison at the same time. So it's taken two directions. The transition to the science of life and medicine in the specific issue of renewing of, of tissues occurred in the 19th centuries from the sciences of inanimate materials. But in the science of inanimate materials and in the arts, the idea of plasticity is exactly what is opposed to elasticity. So it's the antinome. Uh, the antonym, sorry, of elasticity. So elasticity would be the property to recover its original state, which would be the sense conveyed by the advertisement by the pharmaceutical industry. In the inanimate, I'm not saying that the meaning of biology has to be the same of physics and engineering, but I'm, I want to trace how this has been modified over recently. So in, in, the, in physics or engineering, something is plastic if it's in between total elasticity, so something that can recover completely its original state after modification, and something that instead breaks up completely. So that would be not plastic, as the first one would be not plastic. Everything that is in between these two states, or something that completely breaks down, sorry, not up, breaks down, and something that can entirely recovers its original state, it's plastic, with different degrees of plasticity. Um, let me come back to this, because obviously the plastic art for, 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 for excellence, for excellence, for excellence is, is sculpture, <clears throat> in which, you know, the philosophy of sculpture is exactly this, and this is what Erdner conveys in, in the book that there is an immense potentialities in the block of marble at the beginning. It can become whatever, you know, Mary, uh, the Queen, or, or Moses. But then, once the, the, the sculpting process has, has begun, you know, this potential... Just a question, what year was that published? Uh, 1772. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the chronology of... Yeah, the yeah, yeah. 1770. Uh, so the, the point is that the statue can be destroyed and the block of marble, in a sense, restored, but cannot be undone in the sense of an elastic process. So this is one point which I think deserves lots of reflection. So that plasticity is not only receiving a given form, but it has inherent with itself, the idea that some accident, that some event, can become essential, as philosopher Catherine Malabou says. So, the block of marble receives an event, which is the act of sculpting, and then we have the statue. This is something that from potential has become an essential feature, persistent and essential feature of the final. And this is something, and I cannot go into this now, but 
we can talk more in the, in the Q&A probably. It's exactly the kind of need we increasingly find. I say we because this is something done with a colleague in Canada. It's an ethnography of the McGill Group for Suicide Studies where they have this a collection of brain and suicide people which they study mutilation levels or key epigenetic marker. And the use of the notion of plasticity in their writings and their talking to, to Stephanie, my colleague, is very much around this meaning of persistence. So as the condition for a sensitivity of the human organism to an external event that may leave a sort of irreversible signature that can be changed anymore or can be very difficultly uh, uh, modified. But there is a sense of non-elasticity in the sense that even the modification is never the return to the original state, is never the erasing of the pencil. Right, so, and that would be the... the so, I'm sorry, this is the first time I do this kind of, of talk, so probably it's, it's faster than I, I believe at the beginning. So, we will have more time to, to, to talk, actually. And it's sort of also in its initial project for me. Then, the, the third myth, I think, is the idea that plasticity equates with the idea of social progress and social inclusion, and it's a way to combat races and eugenics. So this is a very, very strong idea. It's not only an idea, it was you know, put into practice and to science in a very important wing of the American, um, American anthropology, clearly, uh, obviously, Boas study on the change in the cranial structure of immigrants coming to America in 1910, and then Lasker studies on immigrants moving to Mexico from Mexico to the United States, uh, was mostly an attack on the idea of racial typology by saying, but look, even the cranial index, which you consider the most essential feature of the racial type, is changing because of changes in environmental condition. At the time, I mean, this is one of the curious points about history. That would have been an obvious truth in one generation before, not to mention three generations before. But at that point in time, under the influence, powerful influence of the hereditarianism of the eugenics, American eugenics, and the conjunction I was mentioning in Vachet de la Pouche between the typology of the 19th century and Mendelism. So the idea that Mendelism was confirming the idea that race are types. This conjunction made the discovery of Boas look well, of course, that was empirical. The other geographers I was cited, they were just speculating, probably. But the idea seemed to completely shift around when, it, when instead it, it was more exceptional than the other view, the ecological view. So, one of the points is here certainly. So, there are two, two comments I want to make on this idea that in American anthropology there was a lot of emphasis on people people migrating from one country to another and modifying their cranial uh, index or their bodily features. So one, it was, as I was saying, that this was done explicitly again, one particular wing of the eugenics movement, which was the American movement, which was hardly vegetarian and right wing. I will show you now more what I mean. And the second example, very important, I think, is that all this 
case studies had a similar line of thought. So there were people moving from worse to better socio-environmental conditions. People basically coming from Poland, Russia, Italy, Greece, or Mexico, and going to the United States. And the United States had the impact of uh, merging their different cranial structures into a sort of homogeneous, or tending to homogene homogeneity uh, in terms of cranial measures. But there is an obvious point, which you will see other people who raise uh, in the next slide. So we associate plasticity with good social values because of these examples. But let's imagine the situation of someone spending three decades in a concentration camp. So would we think of plasticity, as Boas did, as a value, biological value associated with ideas of progress? Or wouldn't instead uh, look at the opposite, biological opposite of plasticity, which is robustness? as something that gives us hope for the future. So what, what, what should be the stay in a political discourse about the biology of people in the case of going through very terrible experience for a long, long time? That they are plastic in this sense, or that they are more robust and, capa and capable of not absorbing the influence from the external environment? So there was a very specific a sort of implicit value in the idea of plasticity, which was a movement from something socially difficult to something that was more promising. So, this is actually taken from my book, and it's sort of a way of coming back to one point, that I, I insisted a lot that American anthropologists were fighting a specific wing of the eugenic movement which is what we usually equate eugenics with nowadays. But as I try to show in my book, in a sort of archaeological way, that was just one wing. It was certainly mainstream wing, it was certainly quantitatively the most important wing, but ideologically it was just one-fourth of the whole uh, eugenics movement. So the eugenics movement was based, I try to do this sort of, basic scheme. So we have left and right on one side, and let's say plasticity and non-plasticity on the other side. So we have left plasticians, let's say, Lamarckians, right people believing, right-wing people believing in plasticity, left-wing people not believing in plasticity, right-wing people not believing in plasticity. This is the most, you know, uh, easily uh, associated wing of the eugenics movement as embodying the old experience of eugenics. But, and this is important to address contemporary epigenetics, there was the right-wing plasticity uh, area, which was all about the degenerative effects of the environment of people. People, plasticity was taken in one of the two senses, so not energy, not action, but pascal passivity, receiving. So plasticity was mostly receiving the bad from the surrounding environment. So that was the idea, for instance, of racial poison that was part of the eugenics movement in 1910. So it was defined as a substance of whatever nature which injures the offspring through the parent or parents and is 
is thus liable to originate the generous female distocks. And this was a doctor, Caleb Salebi. And he was a prominent figure of the British eugenics movement. I've been going to this output debate because it's very important. It's actually so let's take now again my uh, quadrant. So I'm talking now of this wing. So they were right wing like the American Mendelians um, eugenicists, but with the idea that it was the milieu that shaped the hereditary substance. So they believed in plasticity, but this plasticity turned to be always a plasticity of poisoning, a plasticity of bad signals damaging groups of people <coughs> sorry, who transmitted this damage to the next generation who then started from the very beginning of their life with a sort of sort of failure or original sin, what you want to call it. And this so medical degenerationism would be one, one part of this right-wing Lamarckians, right-wing plastics. Soft racism would be, would be the other one, so the idea that certain uh, uh, unfavorable climate, certain unfavorable environments shaped in an essential way. So the accident of an unfavorable environment shaped in an essential way the bodies and the mind of people and even their political institutions. One important point which I want to make about this use of plasticity to make a hierarchy of groups is this twofold here. So that there were a double usages of, of plasticity. So one was to say that everyone is plastic, but some is more plastic than others. So in that case, the dispenser, so it's the idea of a differential plasticity among people. And this is the idea that inferior and superior races are contrasted regarding the ability to take in new impressions and to profit by acquisitions. Many travel and the dispenser comment on the unchanging habits of the savages. The same civilized nation of the East, past and present, where or are characterized by a greater rigidity of custom than characterize the more civilized nations of the West. So plasticity is the basic sort of cosmic and social law for everyone, but it takes a differential usage according to a year. So one argument was the lower they are in the, uh, in the racial hierarchy, the less plastic they are. Another argument was the opposite. And the more savage, savage they are, the more at the mercy, at the mercy of external nature they are. So the more are porous to receive environmental signals in 20th century language. Okay, this is just a joke, but it's not really a joke actually because it's a serious book, but um, it's a serious in its implication. I will, I will come to these contemporary applications of this idea. This book just came out a few months uh, ago by a nice publisher, by the way. It's called The Welfare Trade. I don't know if you have read it. it. It's by a neurobiologist at King's College. And it's a basic idea that, how can I put it? So there is, there is a, 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 a trait in the brain that is to be welfare claimant, employment resistant people. 
And this trait is transmitted across generations. But the, the important point is exactly the channel of transmission. He considers both the channels of transmission, the genes and the environment. But the real emphasis is on the environment. He uses Mimi's experiment on the passage of stress in rats as an example of how the employment resistant trait can be passed through people. But I think that this citation is very revealing of the return to this idea of a differential plasticity sorry, among people. So the citation is about the fact that there are two channels, genes and environment. But the point is that human parents transmit their personality attributes to their children by genetic and environmental means. With children in affluent families tending to display greater genetic influence, and children in disadvantaged families displaying greater influence from the family environment. Which is, uh, Popper would have said, totally unfalsifiable. So basically, if you are poor, you get the poison from your own environment. And if you are rich, it, it's the genetic of people who are, um, who are um, better at a social level that is passed to you. So it's the idea that the, more you, the, the lower you are on the social scale, so the more savage you are, in a sense, the more are you at the mercy of external nature. Translated in 2016. Right? Okay, very quickly on the politics of plasticity. So this is the other wing. This is really not much known. So this would be the, the left-wing uh, Lamarck, so left-wing people who believed in plasticity. In a sense, Boas can be seen as slightly connected to this, but the very key author is this. Yes. Would you put Gary Lasker in that quadrant as well? Yes. I'm not sure about these ideas on heredity because Boz as well was, as, as can I say, he was neutral yeah. about the passage of this final modification to a next generation. So he didn't say anything. Whereas Cameron did. I'm not sure about. Well, well, I knew him. Yeah, yeah. Yes. He used to come to Cambridge. Okay. I, I knew him. Okay. Between 1986 and 1994. So. so perhaps you can say later more about his views of heredity. Uh, okay. Um, so I would call this this other wing regenerations versus the degenerations. The, so they both believe in plasticity. So, but the degenerationists emphasized the passivity of receiving poison. Regenerationists emphasized the activity of changing our own nature. So heredity is software in our hands. We can make it heredity comply with our wishes. Well, I don't know if you know the history of Volcano. We don't have now time to talk about Volcano. Volcano is a very important scientist. And he's, uh, what only I can say is that he suicided in 1926 because of the discovery of a fraud in one of his experiments, which is part of a very debated point if there was a fraud or not, marked the end of Lamarckism as a serious, viable scientific possibility among biologists in Europe. So he's really the last key author in the long story of, of Lamarckism in Europe. And his basic idea, you know, he had crazy ideas like this about the pillow, uh, pillow and social right. And, and so poor children are forced to sleep on our pillows or no pillows at all and develop a longer head. While the wealthy have soft pillows that allow their children to develop around school and greater brain capacities. And then it was all arguments about how races are shaped by the environment, how the United States was a fantastic melting pot where 
we we were creating a new Russian type, etc., etc. Uh, our alcoholism could be fought in the United States. But the, the point to understand is that degenerationists claim that the offspring of the drunkards were at a deficit from the start of their life received from their parents habit. And so there were eugenicists in claiming difference uh, in legislation, except for a restriction of citizenship. But Kammer le left plastic so to speak, was as much as eugenics as the, the other people were, exactly because of the plasticity of biology. So he had crazy ideas about, for instance, using testicular implants to influence the sex drive on the sexuals, administering mild radiation to women's ovaries to increase their capacity for breastfeeding. It, it, it was a profound interventionist view on the human body because of its profound plasticity. I think that I'm, going, I'm running out of time. Perhaps it's, it's even less than five. Even Galton, who certainly was not a person you would associate with plasticity, but you know, this citation is about the fact that the, 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 the key point of eugenics, he didn't believe in a plastic heredity, but he believed in the sort of population of you, that you cannot change the heredity of one single person, but you can change the heredity of a group by a eugenics intervention. And if the citation is again, uh, the power of man of animal life producing whatever varieties of form decreases enormously great, it would seem as though the physical structure of future generations was almost as plastic as clay under the control of the Brits. The Brits would be another tradition of looking at the plasticity of the animal forms. And yet there is obviously the other argument, which in my quadrant would be the left Mendelian's argument. This one, this is another forgotten story, especially in the Soviet Union. Um, so, well, I take this argument now in the Chomsky version of it. So, basically, Chomsky says if, if in fact man is an indefinitely malleable, completely plastic being with no innate structure of mind and no intrinsic needs of a cultural social character, then is a fit subject for the shaping of behavior by the state of style, the corporate manager, the technocrat, or the central committee. A slightly different argument was made by Soviet eugenicists in the 1920s, saying, if laboratories not memories was true, so let's say today, if plastic biology, if epigenetics is true, all socially or physically deprived groups, race and classes of people, such as the proletariat and peasantry, and the non-white races, would have inherited the debilitating effects of having lived for centuries under deprived condition. And so on and so forth. Well, and the last part, but I will give you just slides here and then we'll, we'll talk now. It's about the return of degenerationism in contemporary epigenetics, so ideas of poisoned inheritance, resurface. This was, I found, really impressive that the economist title this study about the lack of folate in the diet of male mice in epigenetics, uh, with, with, with the word poison. Because if you really look a study of the association between poison and heredity, after 1920 there is nothing. There is nothing, because under a genetics paradigm, how can you seriously poison heredity? So you can poison heredity with massive nuclear accident, no, but this is not what is meant. This sort of short-term effects of specific habit. And this was another study in Glasgow about 
different motivation levels between the rich and the poor, the uh, manual and non-manual workers, with you know arguments in the newspapers about cards of life being dealt just weeks after conception. Again, it is important this idea that it is weeks after conception because it brings us back to this idea that heredity begins with conception but is extended through it. So it's the idea of an heredity that has a moment. It's not what is fixed at birth in the classical Galton view of nature versus nurture. And this is, I think, the most significant findings I have found so far. So this is in the American Journal of Biology. It's about different birth weight uh, between African-American and white American. And the explanation of this with uh, uh, reference to the slavery experience as something that has, in a, sort, in a sense, sculpted, if I can use the word from sculpture, into the bodies of these people, a sort of uh, transgenerational signal. So, and I found very strong this sentence. So she says, several generations that have passed since the abolition of slavery in the United States has not been enough to obliterate the impact of slavery on the current biological and health condition of the African-American population. So this is a view of plasticity as a backward-looking phenomenon. So it's something that has to do with a sort of averaging of past experiences in your, your own present biology. Uh, and then, of course, there is the generation that gives rise to sort of forms of subjectivity, people asking for compensations because we have been damaged in the past. So there are these ideas about native populations saying, look, so this is true, we have been damaging our biology by this and that, so blah, blah, blah. I know I've been told that you know, the famous Dutch Hunger Winter study about the effects of the Nazi occupation of Holland in 1944 on the metabolism of people. I know that people are now going to the insurance companies and say, look, you, give, you need to give us back more money because we have been through this and now science. And so on and so forth. So the regenerationism is obviously in a different sort today. It's no longer in both time or way. Okay, that was more or less that I took, I think, some minutes more than I, I should have. Okay.